Yeah, I got nothing after that, you guys. That's, uh, that was all of our executive staff, if you did not realize that, were all the characters on there. The idea is giving God the controller of your life. So uh, a lot of video game stuff going on in there, all kinds of fun. Any resemblance between me and the guy dressed up in camo? I don't know. I got nothing. <laughs> hey, uh, we're going to jump into God's Word together today. I want to pray for us before we do that, so will you bow your heads with me? Father, thank you so much for your goodness and your grace. And God, we just pray uh, as we think forward to what you want to say to us today, that you would open our hearts, that you would give us clarity on what the scripture says, that you would speak truth and hope and grace and forgiveness and restoration to each one of us. God, give us the courage to look at ourselves honestly and let your Holy Spirit uh, speak things into our hearts that we need to hear. We pray this in your name. Amen. So hey, before we jump into the scripture, a couple of uh, quick announcements. If this is your first time with us today, we have a phrase that we use around here, and we want to say it together. So if this is your first time with us, welcome home. We are so glad you guys are a part of life here at New Life. The end of service, I would love to have a conversation with you. Also in our lobby is a little location called Starting Point. One of our team would love to give you some information about the church, what God's doing here. So please, after service, stop by and do that. If you came prepared to give today, we want to say thank you for that. Many of our church family give on our app or on our website. But if you came physically prepared to give today at the end of service, little black box over here in the corner, you guys just pop it in there. We appreciate it. And so you're support of what God's doing here. So uh, final thing, if you've got kids, man, bring them to VBS. If you got grandkids, nieces, nephews, like Pastor Tito said, any of those, we would love to have you guys jump in and be a part of that. All right? Grab your copy of God's Word and turn with me to the book of 2 Kings. It's in the Old Testament. The Old Testament scripture starts out with five books, the original ones, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. And then it goes Joshua, Judges, Ruth, and then the, the two. So there's First and Second Samuel, First and Second Kings, First and Second Chronicles. Where we're going to jump in today is Second Kings chapter 6. And we're going to be looking at a pretty amazing story. Some of you may or may not even be familiar with this story. So we're going to jump in there. We're in a brand new series this summer called Miracles. And we're looking at miracles both in the Old Testament and in the New Testament, and we're asking God to teach us the things that we need to be reminded of, because miracles are not just things that happen in the Old Testament or in the New Testament with Jesus. As a matter of fact, there's little miracles that happen in our lives, which is where God does something that only God can do in the moment. So we're going to look at those, and we're going to study those together as a church family. So we're going to talk today a little bit around vision. How many of you have perfect vision? You're 20, 20, 20. Do you have 20, 20? Oh, my gosh. How is that? Oh, my God. That's amazing. So I have terrible vision. Anybody like me? You got absolute? Okay. All right. Good. So all of us. How many of you are thankful for contact lenses? Oh, my gosh. Yes. There you go. I have contact lenses. If I did not have contacts, I would not be able to see any of you. You'd all be a, just a blurry blob, massive humanity without my contact lenses. I have negative six in one eye. Thank you. I agree. It is kind of shocking. And negative five, five in the other. So literally outside of about 18 inches, I can't see a thing. So I'm so thankful for contact lenses. Otherwise, I'd be wearing glasses in my motorcycle helmet, which would not be a good idea. It'd be kind of tough. But uh, August of 2018, I woke up and my left eye was swollen shut. And I got up and I could tell something was kind of weird and I walked over and looked in the mirror and I could only open my right eye and what I saw was the entire left side of my face was swollen and red and hot 
And I was like, okay, what happened last night? So I asked my wife, honey, did I say something or do something in bed last <laughs> night that I should not have done? And you just like laid me out. She's like, no, that is not me. And so we ended up going to the ER and I walked in and the doctor saw me right away. And after asking, did your wife do this? I was like, no, we already cleared that up, doc. He said, well, I want you to, we want to run a couple of quick tests. And I was starting to have little things that were coming up on my skin. And so the doctor came in a few minutes later and he said, I've called an eye doctor up in Modesto. We're down in Turlock. I called an eye doctor. I want you to go up to Modesto right now. He said, I want them to check your vision. Well, I, I had no idea what was going on. So I said, well, what's, what's the matter? He goes, you have shingles. Yeah, thank you. It was painful. I appreciate your response. He goes, you have shingles. And, he, and I said, okay, so what is that? And he explained it to me. It's like hell on earth. If you never had shingles, it is, it's the worst pain in the world. And it affects the nerves in your body, and it affected the left side of my face. And so he goes, I'm sending you right now because if we, you may lose vision in your left eye. So we're driving up to Modesto, we got to the eye doctor, and he's, he's kind of checking me out, and he's doing some tests, and got my contact lens out, and he goes, Here, here's the problem, shingles attacks your nerves, and it could attack your optic nerve in your eye, and you may lose your vision. And I said, well, how, when will I know? He goes, I don't know, it could take two weeks, it could take three weeks, but we're just going to have to wait through it and see. Now, thankfully, I did not lose my vision. Otherwise, as a guy who's played athletics my entire life, that would be terrible because when you have no, no depth perception at all, right, you just absolutely lose that. And I thought there was a possibility I was going to lose the sight in my left eye for the rest of my life. Thankfully, God did something miraculous, healed it for me. Um, I do have nerve damage, which is really weird. I actually feel hair on my face on the left side, which is weird for a bald guy, right? But I literally feel like I've got hair that I have to brush out of the side of my face. Well, we're going to talk today about physical sight, but more importantly, spiritual sight. And one of the things that we lost in the fall, and if you want to go back and read Genesis 1 to 3, you, you find out about original sin and how it came into the world. One of the things we lost in that moment was the ability to see the spiritual action of God around us as clearly as they did in those first couple chapters. So we're going to look in 2 Kings chapter 6, and we're going to talk about a story where God gives somebody incredible spiritual sight to see the powerful work of God. So if you've got your copy of God's Word, I want you to turn there. And by the way, if you opened up in the app to our notes, uh, what we're preaching in Turlock today is different to what we're preaching uh, here in Patterson. So you might want to back out, scroll down until you see the notes for Patterson, and make sure that you open those up, because we're jumping into 2 Kings, and I think Pastor Dave is in Acts 3. So make sure you got the right notes, okay? So 2 Kings chapter 6, and it's the story of some interactions between a guy named Elisha who's a prophet of God, and a prophet of God is somebody who spoke for God. So back in those days, what would happen is God would speak to the prophet, and then the prophet would communicate God's truth and God's message to the people. So it's the interaction between Elisha and a king of a ram named Ben-Hadad. So it starts out, 2 Kings chapter 6, verse 8 is where we're going to pick up. It says, now the king of Aram was at war with Israel, and this is not like it just started. This has been going on for a long time. It's one of those things that the conflict has been going back and forth. One side starts to win, then the other side starts to win. So a constant season of conflict. You ever been in one of those where you're just walking through and things are kind of going bad time after time and it feels like you just get out of one and then you jump back into another? That's what's going on in this passage. They've been in conflict with each other for some time. So the king of Aram was at war with Israel and after conferring with his officers, he said, I will set up my camp in such and such a place. And he's setting a trap for the king of, of Israel. 
He's decided, I'm going to end this war once and for all. I'm going to capture the king. I'm going to kill him, and then the war's going to be over. But look what God does, verse 9. The man of God sent word to the king of Israel, beware of passing that place because the Arameans are going down there. So the king of Israel checked on that place indicated by the man of God. Time and again, Elisha warned the king so that he was on his guard in such a place. Now, you imagine if that happened one or two times, right? You would think that's kind of an accident and it just, that he just got lucky, but he didn't. Time after time, God stuck the information or communicated the information to Elisha. This is what the king of Aram is trying to do and you need to communicate to the king so that he's in safety. Now, as we get further into the story, you're gonna see the hand of God continue time and time again to bring about protection and safety in this. So let's keep going in the story. This enraged the king of Aram so much, he summoned his soldiers and demanded of them, will you not tell me which of us is on the side of the king of Israel? None of us, my lord, the king, said one of the officers, but Elisha, the prophet, who is in Israel, tells the king of Israel the very words you speak in your bedroom. Now, I want to add a little context here because I think it helps us to understand a little bit more what's going on. The name of the king of Aram is not actually in the scripture till a little bit later, but the king's name is Ben-Hadad. And that literally meant the god of thunder or noise. Isn't that interesting? The god of thunder or noise. He was uh, an Iranian god, and he was all about ferocity and violence and noise and ugliness, and the, and the king was named after him. Now, Elisha the prophet, is his name actually means God saves. So the author in here is having a little fun with us, and he's saying that the conflict is really between the God who saves and the little g God who makes a lot of noise. Now think about this. How many times in our lives do we focus on the noise over the God who saves us from the noise? Right? How many times is what gets our attention is the struggle or the problem or the crisis or the conflict that is going on instead of the God who overcomes the conflict? And what the scripture is reminding us is that God is the one who ultimately saves us from the noise and the conflict and the problems and the crisis. So in this passage of scripture, you see that the king of Aram finally gets mad and he goes, all right, who's, who's giving our plans away? Who's telling him what's going on? And everybody goes, it, it, I promise it's not us, right? I promise it's not us. But Elisha the prophet is telling the king of Israel everything you say. And it even says, even what you speak in your bedroom. Now, this is thousands of years before we have the little bugs that we stick in people's, uh, you know, houses and stuff. How many of you are fans of the FBI series? I think it's CBS, the FBI's. Anybody? Oh, okay, good. Some of you. If you haven't discovered that series, it's fantastic. Occasionally, they use those little video cameras or those little bugs, and they plant them in people's houses so they can hear conversations. That's not what's happening here. God is supernaturally telling Elisha, this is everything that the king is planning. And the king gets mad. So he ultimately sends people to go and capture Elisha. Now here's the lesson that I want you to get out of this, this passage of scripture. So if you got your notes, I want you to write this down. Nothing about my life is hidden from God. Nothing about my life is hidden from God. The scripture says two concepts around the character and nature of God is that God knows all things and God is all-powerful. The theological word for God knowing all things is the word omniscient. It literally means that there's nothing that is outside of the scope of God's knowledge. The theological word for God's power, that God is all-powerful, is omnipotent. It literally means God is more powerful than anything else in the entire universe as we understand it and know it. God's the one who's in control. So here's what I want you to catch. 
Sometimes we think that the noise in our lives or the struggle in our life is sometimes outside of the scope of God's knowledge. Right? God, God do, you, do you even know what's going on right now in my life? Are you even aware of the crisis that's happening? This person's trying to destroy me at work and it, it feels like you're, you're nowhere around. God knows. God knows. There's nothing in your life that's ever going to happen that's outside of the knowledge of God. And at the same time, sometimes we can pay so much attention to the noise that what we feel is the biggest thing in our lives is the noise or the crisis right in front of us. And what the scripture says is that no noise, no crisis, no problem is ever bigger than the power of God to resolve the problem in your life. Are you with me, church? Right? There's nothing that you're ever going to face that is outside of the power of God to resolve that crisis in your life. So when you walk into a conflict, whether it's with your boss or your coworker, and it's starting to create problems in your workspace, and you're going, God, do you even know what's going on? Are you powerful enough, God? Can you do anything right here? Stop and remind yourself, I have a God who is all-knowing and all-powerful. God knows what's happening in this situation right now. Maybe it's a relationship. Maybe it's between a, a mom and a dad. Maybe it's between you and your kids. Maybe it's between you and your ex. And you think, well, my ex is now manipulating the courts so that I don't have a chance to even see. Listen to me. God knows. God knows what's going on. God knows what truth is in the situation. God is more powerful than any judge or any ex or any problem or any person that is in your life. God's more powerful. So there is nothing about your life that is outside the scope of what God knows. So you and I can live with confidence, church, no matter what we're walking into, no matter what the crisis or the challenge is in front of us, we have a God who knows our situation and is powerful enough to overcome that situation. All right, now, let's keep going in the scripture. Verse 13. The scripture says, uh, the king now has gotten mad and he sends his guys to go and find Elisha. And he says, go find out where he is so I can send men and capture him. Now, I love, I love the comedy of that statement because his guys have just said to him, hey, Elisha knows everything that you say in this space, even in your room. And the king turns around and goes, great, go find him and capture him. And I imagine one of the guys is going, I don't think he heard us. Like he just, <laughs> Elisha knows about that conversation, right? So the king says to his guys, hey, go, go find him. And the report came back, he is in Dothan. Now, I want you to circle that word Dothan because we're going to come back to that space. Then the king sent horses and chariots and a strong force, and they went by night and surrounded the city. Verse 15, when the servant of the man of God got up and went out early in the morning, an army with horses and chariots had surrounded the city. Oh, my Lord, what shall we do? The servant asked. That's the biblical version of oh, crap. Okay, that's just, that's basically what that means. Don't be afraid, the prophet answered. Those who are with us are more than those who are with them. And Elisha prayed, O Lord, open his eyes so that he may see. Then the Lord opened the servant's eyes and he looked and saw the hills full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. Now, here's what I want you to catch. Sometimes, and you can write this down in your notes, sometimes what I feel is not what is real. Sometimes what I feel is not what is real. So you imagine the servant, right? The servant knows that Elisha's been giving this information to the king. The servant knows that Elisha's been foiling all the plans. He wakes up early in the morning, probably to go get his boss breakfast, and he walks outside, and he sees the army and the chariots right out in front of him, and he does the biblical version of, oh, crap. Okay, he looks out, and he goes, we're dead. We're dead. 
He probably felt trapped. He probably felt isolated. He probably felt alone, probably filled with fear. He knew what his boss had been doing the whole time, so he knew those guys were probably there to kill him. And he looked around and went, there's no back door out of here. We are, we are stuck. You ever been in that moment where the crisis that's in front of you looks huge and you're going, I am stuck. This is going to sink the ship of my life. I don't know how I'm going to get out of this space. That's where he is right there in that story. But sometimes what I feel is not what is real. Because what happens in that moment is Elisha prays and says, God, will you open his eyes to what is real? And when Elisha prays, the servant's eyes are open and literally the entire mountains around this place are surrounded by an army of angels. So here's what that means, church. What he felt was fear. What the reality was, God already got him. God was protecting him. God was providing. God was in that moment. Those guys were going to overpower whatever was going to happen in there. Sometimes you and I respond to a crisis from how we feel instead of from what is real. And when you and I respond to a crisis from how we feel, what happens is that tends to take us oftentimes in negative and ugly spaces. Because I feel fearful. I don't want to lose my job. I feel fearful. I don't want to have conflict with my spouse. I feel afraid because I can't connect with my kids and I feel like I'm losing control in that relationship. I feel like I might lose what my income and my life and my strength. That's how we feel. But what we have to do, and, and hear this, we have to take our feelings and we have to hold them against the truth of God's word and we have to say, does it match? Because if our feelings do not match the truth of God's word, then what we have to do is take our feelings, submit them to the truth of God's word and begin to move in response to what the truth of God's word is. Here's how this works in real life, okay? Grab your copy of God's word and flip over to Ephesians chapter 6. It's in the New Testament, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, it's kind of in the middle of there. In Ephesians chapter 6, Paul is reminding the church in Ephesus where our struggle really is. Because sometimes when you and I have a challenge with an individual, we can think our problem is actually with a person, right? Well, my boss or my sister or my brother or my mom or my cousin or my coworker, and we can think it's a physical person that we're somehow in conflict with. And Paul goes, that's not where the conflict is. Look at Ephesians chapter 6, verse 10. He says, finally, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's scheme. Now, he's setting something up for us. He says, for our struggle that relationship, that person that you're having a problem with, our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers and against the authorities and against the powers of this dark world and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realm. See, if I base my response on how I feel, I feel angry or I feel hurt. And so if I respond from how I feel instead of what is real, I don't actually have a conflict with that person. There's a spiritual problem right there that God needs to deal with that person's heart. No matter how much I yell, how much I scream, no matter how, much, how nice I try to be, I'm not going to be able to fix a spiritual problem. See how that works? So if I respond from how I feel rather than what is real, there is a God, he's all powerful, he knows my situation and he needs to speak into what I can't fix, then I get myself in trouble. Now sometimes what I feel in the moment is that God's abandoned me. I'm in this crisis. God doesn't know what's going on. He's left me. He's abandoned me. And I have no hope in this situation. Flip back over to Ephesians chapter 3 
And I want to share a really cool passage with you coming out of Ephesians chapter 3. Paul has just finished explaining how powerful and almighty God is. And in verse 16, he writes this to the church. He says, I pray that out of his glorious riches, he may strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being. See, sometimes we get so beat up by the crisis, the only thing that's going to set our heart right and give us energy to continue is the power of the Holy Spirit at work in us. It's not something we produce on our own. It's not hang in there. It's God, will you restore the beaten and bruised soul that is who I am right now? And will you bring me back? And that's what he's praying for the church. He says, so that Christ may dwell in your heart through faith. And then catch this. And I pray that you being rooted and established in love may have power together with all the saints to grab how wide and how long and how high and how deep is the love of Christ. And to know this love that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. Now, I want you to think for just a minute, what does it look like when a little kid jumps into mom and dad's arms and they're totally secure and they're totally safe? You know what that picture looks like? That's what he's talking about right here. He says, in the middle of your crisis, I want you to be reminded of the God that you serve and reminded of how much that God loves you. Because if you live in that, you respond in a different place, right? And then he says, now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we can ask or imagine according to his power. So sometimes what I feel is God doesn't love me, God's abandoned me, and God can't fix my problem. What is real is I'm deeply loved by an all-powerful God that I can't even describe how big that love is for me. I can't even describe how, how comfortable and safe I'm going to feel when I engage that love. What I feel is this is too big for God to fix. God, I've screwed up too much. You ever been there? God can't fix this. I mean, I've, this, is, this is huge. No, God can do immeasurably more than we can ask or think or imagine. God can fix those things that you and I can't fix. Last one, Romans chapter 8, verse 30, uh, 38 and 39 so Romans is a little bit back to your left. In Romans chapter 8, Paul's writing the church in Rome, and he says this, I am convinced that neither death nor life, nor angels nor demons, neither present nor future, nor any power, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation. Basically, there is nothing, is what he just said, that will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. So hear the truth, church, that God wants to speak into you. No matter what's happened in your life, you are loved by an all-powerful God. No matter what happens in your life, God is bigger than that challenge or that problem. If I live my life based on what I feel and respond from there rather than what is real, I miss the opportunity to understand how much I'm loved and how powerful God is to speak into that moment. And what happens with Elisha, and write this in your notes, is number two, is that prayer changes my perspective on crisis. Because the servant looked out and went, uh-oh, we are in serious trouble. Elisha didn't pray that God would fix the situation. Did you notice that? There's no prayer in there, God, will you, will you please fix this? What he prays is, God, will you open his spiritual eyes to see what Elisha already saw, which is God's already got the problem fixed. God already had them surrounded by the angels. God already had the force in place. Before those chariots and horsemen from Aram ever came up and set up camp, God already had the angels surrounding Elisha and was already protecting him. Elisha saw that. His servant didn't. 
So prayer changes my perspective on the crisis. So when you and I are struggling, we're in that place where we're going, God, that is a big problem. And we're starting to backpedal in our lives. We're going, "Uh uh-oh, uh-oh, this thing is gonna sink me. What you and I need to do, church, is we need to go back to God in prayer and say, God, will you give me the perspective of heaven on the problem that is in front of me? Because I wanna see what you see. I wanna see your power. I want to see your protection. I want to see your providence. I want to see how you're going to restore and handle this situation. Now, flip over to Psalm 34. I want to share with you something that King David wrote. And he wrote this as he's kind of in an ugly situation. He's just been chased and somebody's trying to kill him. And he sits down in a cave after being chased and he writes Psalm 34. Psalm 34 verse 4 says, I sought the Lord and he answered me. He delivered me from all my fears. Those who look to him are radiant. Their faces are never covered with shame. How about that? Wouldn't that be amazing if we never had to face shame again in our lives? Wouldn't that be amazing? See, the challenge, church, is that sometimes what we do in a crisis, instead of going to God and saying, God, will you give me the perspective of heaven by praying and asking for it, we tend to numb our pain. We grab a bottle, we grab pills, we engage with pornography, we do anything we can to numb that pain so we can get through it. What if there's a different way? What if there's a different way? What if the perspective of heaven actually doesn't allow us to numb the pain, the perspective of heaven actually allows us to see the power of God to resolve the situation so we approach that situation with courage instead of fear? That's what he's talking about here. And so David says, I sought the Lord and he answered me. He delivered me from my fears. Those who look to him are radiant. Their faces never covered with shame. This poor man called and the Lord heard him. He saved him out of all of his troubles. Now catch this. This is written 250 years before Elisha and his servant have this moment. He says, the angels of the Lord are encamped around those who fear him and he delivers them. 250 years before Elisha sees this, King David writes, the angels of the Lord are encamped around those who fear him and he delivers them. Are you catching the picture, church? Here it is. If you're a person that fears God, when you walk into that crisis, not only does God know, not only is God's power able to overcome it, God's already there ahead of you, protecting and guarding you in that moment, guiding you in that moment. His angels are already there in that moment ahead of you. And it says, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. Fear the Lord, you saints, for those who fear him lack nothing. How good would that be to lack nothing? (laughs) Right? How good would that be to walk into a situation, just go, God, you got this. (laughs) Yeah, this this is bad, but God, you got this. You got this. And that's what's going on in this situation. See, what we do when we pray, church, is prayer changes how I see the problem. I see the problem in perspective of the all-powerful, all-knowing God who can overcome the problem and the challenge that I face in that moment. Now, I told you that we were going to go back to this little town called Dothan. And there are, the reason I want to go there is it's only mentioned one other time in the Scripture. And there are times where, like in the case of Elisha and his servant, you and I are going to walk into a challenge. We're going to go, oh, crap. And then we're going to pray, and God's going to give us the perspective and solution right in that moment. And God's going to do a miracle and pull us out of that situation. There are moments where God chooses not to. 
in Dothan, the last time Dothan is mentioned is Genesis chapter 37. And it's around this young man named Joseph. And in Dothan, Joseph was thrown into a well by his brothers. In Dothan, Joseph was sold as a slave to Egypt. So the last time we see Dothan, it feels like God is not doing anything on behalf of Joseph. Now, if you look in Genesis chapter 12, you hear about this guy named Abraham that God calls out, Genesis 1, 12, 1 to 3. God calls him out, and from Abraham establishes the nation of Israel. So Abraham has a son, Isaac. Isaac has a son, Jacob. Jacob has a son, has 12 sons, right? How many of you have more than like three kids? Oh my gosh, God bless you. All right, if you've got more than five kids, <laughs> stop. <laughs> no, seriously, kids are a blessing. My wife and I have one kid. We got one kid, so we play like zone defense with him. He's 19 and taller than me and in college now. But we had just one, and it's challenging being a parent. Imagine being a dad to 12 boys, right? That's Jacob. Well, Jacob has 12 sons, and Joseph is the son that he favors more than anyone else. And his brothers know it. And if you've got more than one kid, every parent says, I love him equal, all right? But every parent goes, yeah, I just, I love that kid right there. That's Joseph. So his brothers find out, hey, dad treats him different than he treats us. And as the boys grow up, ultimately, they get really angry with Joseph. And so when Joseph goes off to visit them in Dothan, they take him and they throw him in this well and they sell him as a slave in Egypt. And we look at that and we go, where's the provision and protection of God? Well, follow the story. He's sold as a slave in Egypt. He ultimately goes and works for a guy named Potiphar. God blesses. He becomes the number two guy. Potiphar's wife looks and goes, he's a hottie, wants to have him. And so he says no. She ends up getting mad, throws his butt in jail. Where is God in that moment? Right? Well, even in jail, it says God took care of Joseph. So years go by in jail. Ultimately, some guy that he thought was going to get him out didn't get him out. Again, where is God in that moment, right? But ultimately, Joseph comes out. God rescues him through a dream. He becomes the number two guy in Egypt. Only person more powerful than him is Pharaoh. And God uses Joseph to save that entire area through a famine of seven years. God gives Joseph the insight and wisdom to do that. You know what happens? Joseph ultimately saves the life of his entire family because of the power of God. See, sometimes, church, God's protection is in place, but God's plan is to allow you to go through certain things because he sees a different plan than you do. So when you're in that moment and you're going, God, where are you? No, God's with you. He's got you. He's faithful. He knows what's going on and he's powerful, but he may be working a different plan than you're thinking in that moment. Joseph, at any moment, could have stepped away and said, God's left me. I'm done right? But he didn't. He stayed faithful to the Lord. God's plan ultimately was to work through Joseph to save the entire nation of Israel. And that's what God did. So there are times when God is working something in your life and you got to hang on and choose to remain trusting that God's knowledge and God's power and God's provision is there for you in that moment. Okay, now I want to wrap this up by kind of finishing out this story. And it ends in a really fascinating way. Verse 18, as the enemy came down towards Elisha, he prayed and said, God, strike these people with blindness. So God struck them with blindness. Now, 
commentators will tell you, people that study the scripture in the original language, this, this blindness was not like, I can't see anything. This blindness was kind of a deception blindness. So what they thought they were seeing and what they were actually seeing was different, okay? And this is where we know that God is a Star Wars fan, because catch the next passage it says here. Elisha told them, this is not the road and this is not the city, follow me. Does that sound like this? These are not the droids you were looking for. So God, God allowed Elisha to deceive them in that moment. He said, this is not the road and this is not the city. Follow me and I will lead you to the man you're looking for. And he led them to Samaria. After they entered the city, Elisha said, Lord, open the eyes of these men so that they can see. So God, God deceived them and then God brought them back to reality. The Lord opened their eyes and they looked and they were inside Samaria. Basically, the entire army was in serious trouble because they just walked into the enemy's stronghold and they were now surrounded and they were in serious trouble. When the king of Israel saw them, he asked Elisha, and I love this, shall I kill them, my father? Shall I kill them? Now, realize this conflict's been going on for years. Both sides have been losing soldiers and losing battles. So all of a sudden, the king of Israel has all this, this army sitting right in front of him, and his thought is like, I can end this thing right now, right? And so he goes, hey, shall I kill them? Shall I kill them? And Elisha says, don't kill them. Would you kill men you've captured with your own sword and bow? Set food and water before them so that they may eat and drink and then go back to their master. So he prepared a great feast for them. And after they finished eating and drinking, he sent them away and they returned to their master. Now catch what happens at the end. So the bands of Aram stopped raiding Israel's territory. Here's what I want you to hear. God brings peace to my struggle. God's the one that brings peace to my struggle. Now, if you go all the way back, that's your third feeling, by the way, God brings peace to my struggle. If you go all the way back to the beginning of this story, God is the one who spoke to Elisha about the trap that was being set. Elisha's not the hero here. God's the hero. God's the one who opened the eyes of the servant to see the spiritual army that was surrounding them in that moment. God's the one who brought blindness to the Arameans. God's the one who brought sight back to the Arameans when they were captive inside the city of Samaria. God is the one who changed the heart of the king so that he didn't kill him. God is the one who brought peace to a battle that had been going on for years. God is the hero of this story, and God is the hero of your story and my story, and that's what we need to hear. That relationship that you can't fix, God can speak peace into that. That broken work thing, that broken family thing, that broken what God can speak peace into that. And God is the one that speaks peace into that. So that thousand pound elephant that's sitting on your chest that's keeping you up at nighttime that you're trying to figure out how to fix, God is the only one who can bring peace into that moment. See, the miracle that happened in here is not a miracle that happened 2,700 years ago, and God never does that. Here's what I want you to hear, church. The same God that did this is the same God that is alive and active in your life right now. The same God. So some of us need to remember that no matter what we face, God already knows and has the power to overcome what you and I face in the challenge. Nothing about our lives is hidden from God. You're never gonna surprise him. It's not like you start praying and he goes, oh my gosh, I didn't know that, <laughs> right? You're never gonna run into that. You're also sometimes going to want to respond from a place of this is how I feel in the moment. And what we need to go is go back to the scripture and go, God, what is real? 
What is true about you and your love for me? What is true about your power over the situation? What is true, God? I need to hang on to that and not how I feel. And then some of us need to pray, God, will you bring peace to something that I can't fix and let God do what you and I can't do? And we have a God who performs miracles even in the moments of our lives. I've seen God heal relationships that I never thought I'd see healed. I saw God change people's hearts that I never thought would get changed. And it's God. It's not me. It's God. Let me pray for you. Father, we thank you for our time today in your word. I thank you for the chance we have as your people to study it. Give us wisdom and insight into this passage and the things that you want to speak into us. And we pray this in your name. Amen. Hey, blessings on your week, church. Couple reminders. If you're a guest first time, love to have a conversation with you. Uh, also stop by our starting point. Don't forget about VBS. It's going to be an absolute riot. Uh, thanks for being here, everybody. Have a great week. Blessings.